Welcome to our study on 1 Peter. Uh, we're on page 7 in our handouts. Uh, we just joined together in our opening prayer, and now we're going to jump into our study. Uh, once again, this is 1 Peter from Cross to Crown. You can find the handouts at rockofages-payson.com. Okay, look at our, our study outline in your upper left there. You can see we, we went through our introduction. We saw how Peter talked about the prophesied suffering and glory of the Messiah. And then really, although the, the focus many people point out is hope, you know, faith looking forward to what's to come, Peter actually does harp on just as much, I think, faith, hope, and love. Uh, those three are really a big part of chapter one. He'll continue to bring them out throughout his letter. We saw how they're a living faith and hope and love because of our living Savior. Now we're starting 1 Peter 2b, or I'm sorry, 1 Peter 1b, which goes at the end of chapter 1 into the start of chapter 2. This section I titled, From Dark Stone, and you could say from Cold Dark Stone, to Living Stones. Uh, just the change, the transformation that God brought about in our life is what Peter's going to try to highlight for us. So we're going to look at, once again, our new status, and the focus, as Peter does, is on Christ. And what does that mean for us as living stones? So the first study part here, born again by the living word. How about this? Survival food is designed to last up to 30 years when stored properly. I, I watched some, I found this kind of interesting. I watched some videos of people unboxing rations from World War II and trying and eating them. It's kind of interesting that the fact that the food is still edible and that anyone would want to try them. I think the packaged meats were kind of disintegrated and disgusting, but some of the crackers, you, you wouldn't know. You know. Oh, this is a 70-year-old piece of food. But I guess when you buy survival food, the, the shelf life, most of those, you know, the world's going to explode. You stock up on this and store it in your shed. It's supposed to last up to 30 years. What thoughts pop in your mind as you ponder that truth? I hope I'm not here in 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I'm not here at the expiration date of that food. <laughs> you get tired of me already? <laughs> so, okay, we start to recognize, do we really even need that? Uh, Peter quotes Isaiah 40 to remind us the glory of the word of the Lord and how long that endures. So Isaiah wrote that some 2,700 years ago, and the word still hasn't expired. So how's that for an expiration date? The word of the Lord stands forever, Isaiah said. 2,700 years later, we're still quoting him. We're still reading the word of the Lord. The prophecies of Isaiah, the writings of Moses and the prophets, and also later on the Gospels, the Evangelists. Things still haven't changed. We're just as quick as we always were. Right. So not only does the Word still exist, but the world in its wickedness still needs that Word. Yeah. Things haven't changed. And that's what Peter's going to try to focus us in now. Um, this world is not going to last, but one thing is, and we really need it as living stones. Uh, can you list some ways we've witnessed the truth, the word of the Lord stands forever? So one thing Jerry pointed out is, well, God testifies to our sin, and that's still true. There's still sin. Uh, I saw an online article saying that most Christians now don't believe in original sin, or that sin is something you should be preaching about. Well, that's, that's the definition, the core of our faith, that we're sinners and we need a Savior. But that's what most Christians now struggle with thinking about, according to surveys. Well, you see it in a lot of foreign countries where, especially now with the technology that we have for communication, various communist countries over the years have tried to suppress Christianity, but it always gets in there. Sure, nations so, come and go, but God's word doesn't go. Right, I mean, and he promised that. Yeah. <clears throat> and certainly we've seen uh, not just the word is there, but the truth of the word is also there, that there's people holding to the gospel. 
Uh, so it's not like, oh, the word is sitting in some library and it's waiting for someone to discover it. There's always, always have been believers who recognize, the, as Peter says, the cornerstone, the Messiah. Uh, that word is there and faith has been there, despite the people that try to stomp it out or the nations that try to snuff it out. And here we are, eager to learn and continue to study that word. Sure. That's my, my follow-up question then is, how will we continue to witness that truth, that God's word stands? Well, right today, God's word stands as it's being proclaimed among us and in our community and in our, our town, in our lives. And even though some churches uh, alter it, they, they rewrite it to fit their needs. You know, like you know, Jehovah, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. You know, there's several passages that they've told me about that. I said, wait a minute, that's not what the Bible says. It's just, you know, they try to alter it, but yet sure. it still stands. People are trying to corrupt, alter, or change the text, but the word is still there. All right, let's open up to 1 Peter 1, 23 and read there. So I'll read so that we... Can I hear it? 1 verse 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. So Peter likes to mix pictures. Here he's mixing the picture of a seed and a new birth through the living and enduring word of God. So we have a new birth, born again. That's a common theme throughout scripture, right? That we must have a new birth. And that's how we got our inheritance, by being born through faith into God's kingdom. How did that new birth come, come about? Baptism. Sure. A baptism is called a rebirth, a washing and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 3, you must be born again of water and the Spirit. Um, that's a new birth that is, you know, by faith, but that takes place also, we recognize, by the working of the Spirit in baptism. Uh, but here, Peter's focusing on the power of baptism, which isn't the water. What's the power of baptism? The word. For, he says, verse 24, all people are like grass, and their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I love how he attaches the application. And this is the word that was preached to you. So what is God's chosen means for giving people new life? The seed or the word, yeah. And that word, yes, is found in water and the word and baptism. And how did we receive it? Through baptism and through preaching and teaching and hearing the word. Can you identify the ways in which God's chosen means for giving new life contrast with all other foolish man-made means for gaining glory? Peter says, their glory, you know, all people, their glory is like the grass that just withers and dies how is God's chosen means so different from the foolish man-made means for new life? So the foolish man-made means for new life, I'm going to get a new career, I'm going to get a new education, I'm going to get a, a new home, I'm going to move to a new town, I'm going to marry someone and have a new marriage. That's not going to last. Those, those can be blessings, don't get me wrong, those are blessings of God. But those new life, their glory is short, isn't it? What about our, our new birth? That stands forever. Yeah, it's going to stand forever. It's by an imperishable seed, the living word of God. So born again by the living word. Peter's led us now to see we're new. The next section is going to pick up with what do you do as someone that's brand new and reborn, so to speak? So the next section I titled, Like Newborn Babies. Chapter 2, verse 1 here. Therefore, I'm going to read uh, verse 1 to 3. Therefore, therefore what? Since you've been born again and you have a new birth by the word of God, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So all evidence shows if a mother 
is able to nurse her baby, it's the best option for that child's development. Not all mothers can nurse, but babies rightly crave their mother's milk. A recent shortage in the supply of baby formula has led some families to water down their baby formula. You maybe heard about that in the news, or you saw those military planes with the, the supplies coming in with the special formula for the lactose intolerant or cow milk intolerant babies. What are some of the, some of the dangers of watering down baby formula? Lack of nutrition. It, it, you think it'd be obvious to tell parents that, but what do they do? They're desperate, right? So they, they have to water it down and the, the baby gets malnourished. Just give them twice as much. Yeah, give them twice as much. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> The same is true for coffee, yeah. So, but can this happen spiritually? And not just water down spiritual food, because certainly we see that, right? Someone's trying to feed you spiritually, they can water it down to the point where there's, there's no real substance to make you strong. It's so watered down. What do I mean by watered down spiritual food? What would be a watered down spiritual food? Well, a lot of these feel good churches. Okay. They, they don't emphasize the, or show people the dangers of the problem with sin. It's like you really, you know, there's a, there's there's some good in everybody, you know, you, you hear it all. Sure, watered down as in kindler, gentler, without the blood of Christ and without the need for redemption from sin. It sounds kindler and gentler and more watered down, but really, it's missing the the substance. It's missing the law. It's missing. <clears throat> it's missing the law quite often. That's watered down. You can either water down the gospel or water down the law. What do I mean by that? Well. I think we get watered down the law. You know, you're not preaching the full sin brings you under a curse. Everybody is sinful and needing of redemption. All of us have sinned and fallen short. That's why you don't want to water that down. But how can you water down the gospel? By thinking that you have to do something to receive forgiveness. Yeah, so we have a Savior. He's, he's covered you. He's covered part of you. Or he's covered some of your sins and the really bad ones. But you've got to do good yourself to make the rest... So, if you're a good person, then you kind of just need a, a sort of good savior, right? So that that's watering down the gospel. Peter says, "Crave pure spiritual milk, not watered down, not adulterated." So we, we mentioned that earlier. You know, false churches that not only water down the teaching but change it—that uh, would be adulterated. Uh, throw in some. You know, I think I've gave, gave this illustration before. If, if you were drinking a cup of water and I said I put in one drop of toilet cleaner, you could drink it and probably not get sick, right? Just one drop. Take that chance. <laughs> <laughs> but do, do you want to? And how much, how much before you start to feel the toxic effect of that false teaching? How much false doctrine is, is harmful? Why would you want any false doctrine? Peter says, crave pure spiritual milk. Uh, what are some reasons why someone might end up drinking contaminated, watered-down spiritual milk? It makes them feel good. They don't want to hear that they're a sinner. Okay. If you tell them you're a good person, then that, that's going to help. It, it may actually be a way to make them feel good, but kind of in the same way that uh, a shot of alcohol will make you feel good. It doesn't fix the problem. It only hides the problem. So it's a temporary feel-good. Uh, those false teachers, they're trying to get people in their doors and get them giving money in the fastest way possible with the feel-good theology, without the cross, without repentance. If you're attending a church for the wrong reasons, like, you know, maybe you like their programs that they have, or their children's programs, so you attend that church, but then you're feeding yourself the, the false doctrine. Definitely. So they're not looking for the food that's being offered. They're looking for the, the environment, the catering, the staff, and how they're dressed. They're looking at all the social aspects, yeah, instead of what is being fed at that, that church. So, yeah, they'll end up drinking the spiritually either contaminated or watered-down milk because they're not concerned about the food. They're, they're concerned about the externals, the, as we, Peter says, the glory of people, which is, which is fading grass. Also, some people may not want to give up a pet's head. Okay. So they... So they the watered-down version of salvation being, I can earn forgiveness. If I do enough good, then I don't have to give this up. Right, so the... Kind of thing. 
the the junk food or the the terrible toxic stuff that they're eating they don't want to give that up because they're they're hooked on that because of sin and they can't let go of it that can happen too so if the pure spiritual milk goes through a cleansing phase they don't want to go through that yeah so drink pure spiritual milk now that you have tasted that the lord is good so pure spiritual milk isn't something bad it's not something that tastes bad or it's not like you know health broccoli or something that a lot of people have aversion to <laughs> or sauerkraut or whatever your aversion is. I like sauerkraut too. But there are some foods where people say, oh, that, how can you ever eat that? But once you've tasted that the Lord is good, it's, it's, like, you know, it's like pizza. Someone say, how could you not like that? It is good and good for you. So... Peter says, crave it, and picture the idea of a newborn baby craving what is good for them. Think how tragic it would be if, if a, a newborn didn't crave its own mother's milk. Uh, that can happen sometimes, but that's just destructive when you don't crave what you need. So crave God's word, Peter says. Uh, can you describe the way our first birth... So Peter says we've been born again. How did our first birth leave us treating people around us? Yeah, our our first birth, people say, "Oh, you gotta you gotta affirm people because they were born that way." Well, then you're affirming a sinner, and you're affirming the fact that they were born in sin. We should be affirming our second birth, not our first birth. Um, if you affirm the attitudes and actions of that first birth, uh, you are, as Peter says, have malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. That's in chapter two, verse one. Uh, so our, our new birth rids, he says, rid yourself of this. You have a new birth, that means a new life. Um, we're urged, because we're mature in our faith, hope, and love, to get rid of all those things, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Notice that's a relationship with other people, right? So Peter goes right away to, you got God's word, you've been born again. What about your brothers? How do you, how do you get along with them? What about the, the fellow human beings around you that you used to deceive, lie, envy, slander. Can you give some quick examples of how we do that? How do we rid ourselves of all those things? Prayer. Sure, watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. Lord, you know, I'm, I'm struggling. Forgive me for my, my struggle with hypocrisy, with my struggle for lies. Help me to live a new life. Be in the Word. Okay? And actually, doesn't Peter give us the answer in verse 2? So rid yourself of all the, the stuff from your first birth and crave what gives you new life. Crave pure spiritual milk that you grow up. Alright, so now that we're growing up as newborn babies... Peter's going to throw in another picture. He, he just loves these uh, play on, on words here. So he's got the, the withering, the seed, uh, the enduring word. He's got newborn babies, craving. Now he's going to get to building. So now we're going to start a building project. Living stones, join the living stone. So let's start now at verse 4. So we've tasted that the Lord is good. We're growing up. Now we're being built. Verse 4 reads, As you come to him, the living stone, and the living stone, my Bible capitalizes stone, it's a proper title here for Christ, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. So that's what he is as the Christ, right? The chosen one. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Remember, I mentioned the picture of a priest has been brought up, you know, sprinkled, consecrated. Now he says you're being built to offer sacrifice like a priest as part of the temple. So we're, we're seeing that picture develop. All right, so we're living stones, and just as God was, God's Son was rejected and chosen, we also are being built. People who are 
rejected by the world, but chosen by God. So as the living stone was built into a spiritual house, he's the, the stone, the rock, we're a part of it. Do you picture yourself as like a, an actual part of the church, the temple of God? Paul says, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And Peter's playing on that picture to say, as, as Christ is the, he's going to talk about him as the cornerstone, you're being built up on top of the foundation of Christ to be that, that church. Church is not, as the English word sometimes regulates it to be just a building, right? It is all believers. I think Craig's Bible has a pretty cool illustration for that. In picture of the church? Living stones. Is it a bunch of people stacked on top of each other? Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll have to do show and tell and look at that picture afterwards. <laughs> uh, what are some parallels? As you read through 1 Peter 2, 4-5, what are some parallels believers share with Christ, once connected to him through faith? Okay, so Christ is, and actually this is Ascension Day, he's our ascended priest, he's interceding on our behalf. We are also priests under the great high priest. So just as Christ has been appointed, he was anointed to be priest, we are priest. His sacrifice once for all was himself, his interceding is forever as a high priest at the throne of God. In what way are we priest? What do we do as priests now? Share the word with other people. Sure. Priest did teach the people. I, I kind of lumped that under prophet, but you're right. Peter does get right into that as a, a priest to declare his praises. So we speak God's word. We give holy um, sacrifices, as in um, our, our investment of ourselves in other people, um, being patient and listening. Um, you know, that's hard sometimes when people garble on. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, uh, we, we sacrifice our time, um, some money, um, just invest ourselves in people in the community in order to bring Christ. That's a holy sacrifice. Yeah, our, our life now involves, as a priest, offering up spiritual sacrifices to God. And no sacrifices, you're right, they're not like we're going to go to the temple and offer up a bowl, it is the things that we do as the people of God are acceptable to God through Christ. And notice Peter never says those are sacrifices to pay for sin. That is done. Uh, Christ, the cornerstone, has paid for sin. Our sacrifices now, as Paul says, are spiritual sacrifices in view of God's mercy, thanksgiving to God. And those are also part of what even the Old Testament priest offered up. Spiritual sacrifices, responses of, of thanks to God in our life. So yeah, you're a priest and you're offering up a sacrifice with your life. In fact, Paul, as he's in prison, is about to die, he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. So he considered his, his very blood, his life, like a sacrifice, just being poured out to the God who gave him everything. Yeah, and how do we know that that's not a sacrifice for forgiveness? Well, look how Peter has already mentioned. You, you've been born again. You have an inheritance. Now God has already chosen you through Christ. But he's going to further lay down um, the, the price, the blood that was shed. He's already mentioned you've been bought with, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. Uh, so we can't offer anything more for sin. It's been done. Yeah, so okay, so look at the parallels. We are priests like Christ. What are, what are the parallels do we see? So Christ is a priest. We are now priests in the household of God. Any other parallels that you notice in those verses? I think we can suffer rejection from people who are not believers. Sure. Um, like Rejected by human, but chosen by God. That's kind of a theme to Peter's letter, actually, that the fact that believers are going to be scorned by this world as they sojourn and that the world rejects and mocks them, but Christ faced that. So you're just following after Christ, who himself was rejected, and you, like Christ, though the world rejects you, know 
You're an elect. You're chosen by God in grace. Christ from eternity, but us now as his adopted children. Okay, so we got, we're priest, we're rejected, we're chosen. Obviously, you could add, and precious. We're part of God's house. We're going to heaven like Jesus did. Sure, he's the living stone. So if, if Jesus is the living stone, as we celebrate on Ascension Day, he's gone to the Father's side, he's going to come back and take us to be with him. We will live with the living stone forever. So everything that, that Christ shared and we now follow and participate in uh, through faith in him and through our new birth. Um, if you look at the side note, um, our birth of a perishable seed, I just put John 1.13. John says, You've, you, you have the right to become children of God. And John says, not by human decision or husband's will, but born of God. Uh, that's what the same picture Peter brings in here. Also, I put um, in that side note, living, comes up four times in 1 Peter. Chapter 1 mentioned our living hope. And then we just saw the living word and the living stone. And then the fourth one is we are living stones. So the fourth living, just as Judy pointed out, is us, right? So we got a living hope in the resurrected Savior and our inheritance. We got a living word. Uh, that the Spirit gives us. The living stone is Christ, and we are also living stones. And then I, I put another note there on born again. Um, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth, James says. And then you guys, you right away mentioned, I don't even need to take us to this side note, but we know that birth comes through baptism. Peter's going to actually say in chapter 3, baptism saves you. Uh, so we're going to see Peter bring up what you saw there, what you mentioned, or as Paul says in Ephesians 5, uh, God made the church holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And you can compare 1 Peter 3.21, baptism saves you with John 3.5-7. You must be born again by water and the Spirit. Okay, so I just want to briefly touch on those side notes. We're not going to dig into them today, but they're just kind of interesting tie-ins <clears throat> that I didn't make main discussion points. <clears throat> Turn to page, page 8. And now we're going to look at the living stone in further detail. He goes from rejected stone to cornerstone. And this, this has a really wonderful highlight of the gospel, this section here. Uh, Peter keeps on bringing these neat pictures, you know, Christ's precious blood. Here he's going to bring in how uh, he was rejected but chosen. Perfect for Ascension Day. This is a perfect text for us to read. So let's read, uh, let's see, First Peter 2 starting at verse 6. For in Scripture it says, remember he just talked about Scripture being the living, enduring word, so he's going to quote it. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And we'll pick up verse 8 in our, our next section. All right, so Christ was the rock that the Father said he would use to build his house. So he, picture there's like this quarry St. Peter's taking us to, and he's chosen. The, the Father says, okay, this is my son. We're going to build the church on him. But those in charge, so as Peter calls them, the builders, they rejected him. That's the spiritual leaders of Israel ended up rejecting the chosen one. However, that living stone still ended up as the cornerstone of the church. And that's, that's the prophecy Peter quotes there from Psalm 118, which everybody knew was messianic. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Just picture that irony. All the builders who are supposed to be the experts are saying, you can't build on that. That's worthless. Put that stone on the corner and let's use other stones. And God says, nope, that's the stone that I chose. That's the stone we're going to build my church on. And it becomes the cornerstone, even though it was a rejected stone. So in a striking picture of rejection, humiliation, glorification, and irony, it's very striking. Peter is setting the stage for what he will mention next. He wants the reader to ponder the rejection of Christ. 
which led from cross to crown. Because Christ was put to shame in our place, we will never be put to shame if we trust in him. 1 Peter 2.21, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. How does the rejection of the Christ help you when others try to put you to shame for trusting in him? We know we're standing on that rock of our faith, and it's okay. Yeah, rejection of men doesn't change the fact that he's our rock. This is kind of a neat section, too, in that it's our namesake of our church, right? Rock of Ages. You had a comment? I was going to say, when, when um, he says that we'll be rejected by men because they're really rejecting him, and that should be for us a source of joy rather than one of feeling sad and rejected. Yeah. And I like how you point out, he said, you know, Christ knew he would be rejected. The prophet said, long written down, he would be rejected. So it's not some surprise that we should be saying, oh, did God fail? No, this was God's plan. And the, the fact that he was rejected should actually strengthen us. Every time we're rejected, it just fulfills <clears throat> Yeah, when we are rejected, it's, it's as, as Christ said, they'll reject you, but they're rejecting me. And they're rejecting not you, but the cornerstone. That we will go through those trials. Right, so it was told not only that he would suffer, but those who trust in him would suffer. However, as Isaiah says, I laid that stone, God says, a chosen <coughs> cornerstone. And if you trust in him, you're not going to be put to shame. In the end, our, our hope is alive, our Savior is alive. <coughs> So the fulfilled prophecies of Christ's humiliation and exaltation give us a living hope, even as we suffer. All right, going on here, he, he, he talks about the, the precious chosen cornerstone Christ. The next section I have is never put to shame versus stumble and crumble. So believers will never be put to shame as they trust in him. But what about those who reject him? They will stumble and crumble. We've got to read verse 8 now. So this rejected stone is the cornerstone and, so I'm reading from the NIV, a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So that, that's what the NIV says. But listen to another translation. This is the, the EHV, and it's not the only one that takes this approach. So the EHV reads, a stone over which they stumble and a rock over which they fall, because they continue to disobey the word. They stumble over it, and that is the consequence appointed for them. All right, so do you see the difference in those translations? What, what do you see as you compare those two different ways of translating verse 8? What is one seeming to say, and what is the other one saying? Like, um, I have the ESV, and it says, as they were destined to do. That almost seems like they were predestinated to... Okay, as they were destined to do versus the translation, and that's the consequence. That's what they're destined to face or to be because of their disobedience. So does God destine someone to unbelief versus does God destine unbelievers to condemnation and stumbling? See, see the difference there? One is blaming God for, uh, and this is where some people turn for what would be double predestination. That not only are you chosen from eternity to be saved, but therefore, using just logic, Scripture doesn't teach this, but therefore some are chosen to be condemned. Uh, whereas, but then that contradicts Scripture. When it says, for God so loves the world, and then he and, and it says elsewhere that he doesn't want anybody. Right. He wants that, to save everybody. He doesn't want anyone. Right, and I think I even bring that more in our next study guide, but Peter's going to end up saying uh, in his next letter that the reason the world isn't destroyed, he wants all to come to repentance. So that, that doesn't fit with Peter's context, and you're right, Bill, it doesn't fit with Scripture's context, that God sent his Son for the world, and God so loved the world. There is no one in this world that God does not want saved or has destined for destruction. Um, if they're condemned, it's their fault. And actually, look at the first half of that verse. 
Notice the difference. A stone that causes people to stumble. Or a stone over which they stumble. Or one translation says, a rock that makes them fall. Or a rock over which they fall. Does Christ cause and make people stumble? Or is it really they are stumbling over him? Yeah, he is, as the translation, if you want to just make it in between those two translations, he's a stumbling stone. So does, does that mean he causes stumbling? Like he's, I'm going to go trip this person up. Or is it simply he's a stone that some people go against, and because they disobey and they, they don't believe him, they're going to stumble over him. Big difference in translation, isn't it? One is blaming Christ for unbelief. The other one is recognizing unbelievers are stumbling over the rock that they rejected. Uh, the only people who text don't know about picking on you. But it paints, to me, it, paint, it just painted a picture in my mind. And the stone doesn't cause. It's not, you know, it's the person that's walking down the sidewalk texting <laughs> sinful messages. <laughs> it doesn't see the rock, <laughs> so he stumbles and trips over it. <laughs> you know, I right. see that so many times where people almost walk into stuff because they're so busy looking at this thing instead of doing what they're supposed to be. They came across your intersection, so yeah. So the difference, if you look at, I'm not going to dig too much for you into the grammar, but in the Greek here. It's a participle that's circumstantial that it says they stumble because they disobey the message. Okay? Or because they continue to disobey the word, they stumble. So you see it describing why is the stumbling taking place? It's because of unbelief. Not because God is causing them to have unbelief or God destined them for unbelief. It is really their own unbelief. And so everybody has been warned since the very beginning. Do not eat. The day you do, you will surely die. Yeah. So God cannot be blamed at any point. It is always sinful man. Uh, that next portion I have there. Some contend God's foreknowledge of unbelief means we should teach he has appointed some people to unbelief. But if you look at 2 Peter 3.9, what does 2 Peter 3.9 tell us? So this is Peter once again, and we'll see, because we're going to continue in Peter's letters, we'll see this is, yes, we can with confidence say Peter wrote this as well. Someone have 2 Peter 3.9? So 2 Peter. Yeah. Someone wants to read it? The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So the Lord does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He doesn't put a qualification, all except for those destined, that he destined to destruction. No, he wants all to come to repentance. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Uh, you look at what Jesus says as he's looking at Jerusalem. He says, how I long to gather you, but you were not willing. It's the sinner's fault, not God's fault, if there's any stumbling. How about 1 Timothy 2, verse 4? So, yes, we're stepping into a different author, but all scriptures God breathed. What does Paul say when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 4? <clears throat> Reader for that one. Mine starts in verse three. Sure, you can read the context. Yeah. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Yeah, that's that's a good translation. Who wants everyone to be saved? Uh, the NIV back in 1984 even said all men to be saved. And people said, wait a second, God wants all men to be saved? (laughs) Well, we're more um, sensitive today to the fact that the masculine plural doesn't seem as inclusive to both genders. So, But yeah, the Greek actually indicates they're all people. Everyone is a good way to translate it. God wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That too is God-breathed. And that is Paul 
along with Peter, identifying the will of God that nobody's been appointed for destruction. So on the basis of those clear truths, which is a better translation? So I listed two for you. Which do you think is a better one based off of the rest of Scripture? And that's how we want to approach translation, not just, well, this way is possible. Which way is better in context? I like the second one better. Sure. A stone over which they stumble, a rock over which they fall, because they continue to disobey the word. And that's the consequence appointed for them. So yeah, if, if you don't believe the word, you're going to stumble over Christ. Now that's what Peter's getting at. Not, uh, these are people that from eternity were destined for destruction, but rather all who don't believe and who reject will be condemned. All right, so yes, there's a logical problem that people have with predestination. We just want to leave it at scripture. God wants all to be saved. If you're saved, it's part of his eternal plan and he chose you. It's for your comfort. If you're not saved, it's your fault and your rejection of him and unbelief. And we just leave it at that uh, to give God all the glory and give us the blame. Uh, God is absolutely good and holy. We are not. Leave it at what his word reveals. Uh, Can you list some of the ways people stumble over Christ? So yes, we got the right translation there. We're stumbling over Christ. He's not making us, but he is something someone you will stumble over in unbelief. What are some ways people stumble over him in the gospel message? Their interpretations, sometimes. Sure. We saw saw that even in the life of Christ, right? They interpreted him to be a worldly king, a breadwinner. Remember after he fed the 5,000, they they wanted to make him king. They stumbled because they didn't didn't want what he was preaching and teaching about sin and forgiveness. They wanted an earthly king. Sometimes people stumble over that. They're so focused on the glory of this world and this sin-cursed world that they don't see Christ as an eternal Savior. They yeah. stumble over hanging on to some sin. Sure. So they, they see Christ and they, they see he's the, the stone that <coughs> is the foundation for salvation, the building of God's church, and they say, but, but I can't stack my sin on top of him and keep my sin. I have to let my sin be covered by him? No, I don't want that. So they, they struggle either with repentance or letting go, turning aside from letting go of that sin and putting it at the cross. That's a way to stumble over Christ. Um, here we are proclaiming, he'll forgive you, and there's, there's no sin so great, he'll never forgive you, and sin takes its hold, so they stumble over Christ. Um, this might be a little bit of a rabbit trail, but isn't the source of all this, the unbelief, the, the ego, isn't this pride? Um, you know, it's, it's the two-year-old, no, I can do it myself kind of thing, and that's the original pride. Yeah, so kind of the opposite direction of holding on to sin, it might be holding on to not seeing your sin. You're so prideful, you don't think you have a sin. So when someone says, there's your Savior, you in pride build your own stone. You say, nope, I don't want that stone, I want this one that I've carved out. And in pride, you stumble over Christ, the chosen one, because you are trying to build your own kingdom in self-righteousness and pride, definitely. So those are ways people stumble over Christ. Either they stumble because of their sin, they stumble because of their inability to see their sin and therefore also not repent, or they stumble because they're not looking for the the Savior that the Scriptures reveal, some other type of Savior. You have to go back to the commandments to see your sins. Yeah. That's what the law is all about. You can't see Christ unless you see him on the cross dying for sin, your sin. And you can't see your sin if you to look at the mirror of the law and examine your own heart. But then when you do, isn't he, as Peter says, a chosen and precious cornerstone? Remember last time Peter said precious? It was his precious blood. Uh, He is a precious Savior. Jesus, priceless treasure. He to us is the one that we trust in. We know we'll never be put to shame building on him, not building our own temple. Uh, we, we stumble in unbelief, but with him we, we build on a precious stone. Okay. Stumbling in darkness, serving in light. Uh, that's verses 9 and 10. We're at our time, um, but I think we could wrap it up here. So Peter continues to convey the picture of a priest serving in God's temple. 
Through faith in Christ, we're made to be the temple itself, and we are filling the role of priest. So let's read about that now. Verses 9 and 10. But you, and that's a strong adversative pointing out the difference between you and those who stumble, but you, you who trust in the living stone, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Those titles Peter gives there harken back all the way to Exodus 19, I believe it is, where he's saying, you'll be for me a royal priesthood, a chosen nation. That's us, not just Israel standing before Sinai, but all who are building on Christ. He says, verse 10, and this makes it clear that the, the audience or the original recipients, a lot of them were, were unbelievers before. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this is Peter writing to the scattered, not just Jews, but Gentiles in the ancient Macedonian area of Asia Minor. Um, actually, Asia Minor, uh, what is now modern-day Turkey. Okay, so Peter continues that picture as priest. What's our change in status now that we're priests? Trusting in the stone, building on him. Yeah, we're chosen, we're saved, we're holy. What's our change in purpose? Yeah, instead of our own praises, declare his praises. The praises of a God who rescued us, and he's mixing pictures again from darkness to light. And what's the cause of these changes in our status and change in our purpose? Yeah, you were called out of darkness. So it's, it's God reaching out to us, him coming to us with that, as Peter calls it, imperishable seed, bringing us to faith, calling us. And why were we called? Because we were chosen in grace. And also, you have received mercy. So not that we deserved it. You're not chosen because you're better than other people. God reminded ancient Israel that too. But he tells us it's because of his mercy that you're chosen and called to be a priest, uh, to serve God. So looking at the, the additional side notes before we wrap it up, I put acceptable through Christ as a, a point of discussion there. Hebrews 11.6. We can't earn more, but God brings those sacrifices acceptable through Christ's sacrifice. Also, I put living word there from Isaiah 28, 16. Um, how can you give spiritual milk to people needing it? So if God has poured out that drink for us, how can we pour out that milk for others? <clears throat> Bible translation question, that's another note. Peter quotes the Greek of the Old Testament, not the not the Hebrew of the Old Testament. So the Greek translation is a little bit different from the Hebrew in the Septuagint and the version of the Septuagint that he uses here. What does that tell you about Bible translation? You know, it's not necessarily you have to have the exact translation. It's the meaning of the text that matters. So when someone says King James only, well, Peter wasn't Hebrew text only. He was also Septuagint. Uh, and then I put the note there, a stone in Zion. If you want to see what Zion is being pictured there, look at Hebrews 12, 22 and following. So I lay a stone in Zion. It's not just, as some people will focus on, the physical building in literal Israel today that we should be focusing on. The metaphor is clear. And the, Zion is also a metaphor. What's a, what is Zion a metaphor for? If the stone is a metaphor, what's Zion a metaphor for? Our heavenly home, the kingdom of God, the church, yeah. And the writer to Hebrews talks about the heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So don't lose sight of that as well. Uh, Peter's bringing the picture of the, the church has a stone. Christ is that stone. And then I talked about priesthood. Um, so there's a little side note there about how we, like the priest, are sprinkled, purified, chosen, and now serve God. Uh, this is the priesthood of all believers. This is a good place to turn for that. And when you get to Peter's teaching about the priesthood of all believers, we talked in our introduction, how that, that flies right in the face of the teaching that Peter was the first pope. Because the first pope said, 
oh, by the way, you're, you're all priests, which is very different from the Roman Catholic teaching that doesn't want to acknowledge the priesthood of all believers, that we all have direct access to the throne of God with our prayers, that we all uh, have equal status and standing, regardless of whether you have apostolic succession and the laying on of hands from tracing back to Peter. Okay, other thoughts on this section? We did it. We made it through pages seven and eight. Um, you were talking about King James Version, and it reminded me of back when Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon. You know, he did it all in King James. Right. Who really spoke it? Old English, yeah. You know, who really spoke it? They tried it that way back then. And who could really? That should have been a red flag. Right. Maybe it was. Hopefully it was to some The use of Old English was a way of saying, see, this is scriptural language. Yeah. Yeah. What, what is scriptural language? Well, then you'd literally have to be writing in Hebrew or Greek then, right? And then, uh, I don't know if they still hold to that to this day. Um, the King James Bible is the preferred in many churches, in, including the LDS. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, okay, so then... Now what do you do when you go to a foreign country and you want to reach out? And if if anybody in the LDS has listened up to this point, I'm not calling the LDS a church. Uh, They are those who have rejected the cornerstone. And if you want to learn more about that, I'd love to talk to you about it. I'm not sure they'll listen this far in our Bible study anyways. But I hope they do. And they thirst, they crave for more spiritual milk about the cornerstone. All right. Yeah, thank you. for, so this study, I hope you don't feel I'm trying to rush through these pages, but my, my plan is, and that way I can plan ahead too, we're going to do two pages every session. And that way you kind of get a feel for the flow of the text. Some Bible studies, it's fun just to go, you know, we're going to do one verse today. But this way we're getting a flow of thought and we're seeing how things tie in week by week. So I hope you're appreciating that aspect. And when we switch gears again, we'll, we'll go back to that, that slower pace again. But I hope you're also appreciating this approach as well. So it's not that I'm trying to rush you, I'm just trying to tie it all together. Why don't we uh, close with a prayer about what we studied today. Lord, thank you for making us uh, members of your kingdom, part of the, the household, the temple of God, by giving us new birth through that enduring word. As we put our trust in him, uh, we know that we will never be put to shame, that like Christ, though the world rejects us, we have a precious and chosen cornerstone. With this new life, Help us to put off all envy, hypocrisy, deceit, and lies, and to crave the the truth of your gospel, that we might grow up in our salvation. Lord, we've tasted that you are good. Uh, Keep us in your care. And now that we've been called from darkness, use us as your priests to declare your praises and your wonderful light. Amen.